Lord Jesus, we thank you for that victory, your victory over sin and death. A victory that you graciously and mercifully welcomed us into. One that we did not deserve or we could not earn. And yet because of your great love for us, we've been welcomed in. And we can call out to our God as Father. So I pray now, Father, that you would um, just remind us of your great love. Send your spirit to speak truth um, to the depths of our souls. Got to pray that in the midst of many things that are changing, we would be um, aware, just focused on the reality that you are unchanging. So the promises that you have made from old are true and are sure. And even today, Lord Jesus, we hold fast to the promise that you will not forsake us even to the end of the age, that you are with us always, that you have gone to prepare a place for us that you will will one day welcome us home into. You have made us citizens of a new kingdom. So help us today through your word to be just lifted up, instructed, guided to live as citizens of that kingdom. We need your help. I need your help, Lord. We thank you. We do it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, good morning. You can be seated. Um, So good to see you here with us. So good to see a um, image in my mind of you at home with us. And uh, we're so glad that you're worshiping with us this morning. Um, My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here at City Church. And we are uh, today closing out, ending uh, a series um, in the book of Amos. And uh, once again, if you are um, new with us, if this is your first time um, hearing this, uh, hearing my voice, at least in this format, then I'd encourage you, you can go back and you can uh, catch up on our series. You can use our podcast. You can go to our website, citychurchmelissa.com. You can find links to all of those things. But we are closing out this book. We look forward to next week, by the way, beginning a new series, a new teaching series on the Sermon on the Mount. But as we close out Amos, um, we have finished last week, chapter 6, and if you know your Bibles well, I encourage you, you can flip over to Amos right now. Amos chapter 7, you're thinking, okay, he says he's going to finish, but there's three chapters. Um, don't worry, we're not going to be here all afternoon to make it through those three chapters. But this closing um, section of Amos, these last three chapters, is in a sense encompass or take us to this final vision of Amos. Amos, he has five visions of coming judgment. And so, as we've seen all throughout this book, Amos, a prophet, not really a professional prophet, but ultimately a shepherd and um, a leader in the southern kingdom of Judah, is called by God to leave his territory to go north and to uh, prophesy uh, to Israel, the northern kingdom, and to tell Israel of all of the sins that they have committed and ultimately how they have forsaken God. And we, if you were with us last week, and if not, I'll remind you, Amos 5.24, this theme verse of this book says, 
says, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Primarily, Israel had drifted away. There was plenty of religious practice in the land. There were things that they were engaged in that looked like the things of God. They seemed to worship. They were giving money. They were doing all those things, as Amos even in some of these visions will allude to again. However, they had forgotten the heart of God, and they were not following God with their hearts. And so that's why God, through Amos, declares that he despises their worship back in 21 of chapter 5 and following. He does not care for all the things that they are engaging in in terms of religious activity because they weren't following him. And his heart is a heart of justice and righteousness. And what he wants to see with his people are people pursuing him. And that, and as a result of their pursuit of him, being people who love him and love others as we receive the new commandment in the New Testament. Well, the people of Israel had forgotten that. And so Amos has over and over and over again declared this judgment coming for Israel. And he closes um, his prophecy, this book. We close with these five uh, visions that Amos receives from God about this coming judgment against Israel. So beginning in chapter 7, Amos is dealing with the fact that he's really grieving this message. If you might remember that Amos, back coming from Judah, he's sent to Israel, and he doesn't really want to go up there, but he's like, okay, I'll go there. But he's from the southern kingdom. He first declared all of the sins of the nations that surrounded Israel, then comes to Israel, and over and over again, just declaring these things. But in Amos 7, we see that he has a heart for the people. This is not something that he revels in. He's not coming to Israel thinking to himself, and ultimately knowing that this judgment comes against God, is speaking it against his own people as well, that this is something that grieves him. And so this is what, as he begins in chapter 7, this is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings when they had finished eating the grass of the land. And so he sees the first vision is locusts coming and devouring the crops after the summer crop, which would have been the last crop that could have sustained the people, ultimately, which would have led to their devastation, their destruction. But Amos responds, and he does this twice. He responds to God. He says, oh, Lord, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? Jacob, in a sense, is Israel. He is so small. And so the Lord hears Amos's prayer, hears Amos, this prophet, his man, Lamenting and interceding for the people. And he asked God, please relent. And so in response to Amos' prayers, the Lord relented, as it says in verse 3, the Lord relented concerning this, it shall not be. The second vision was a vision of fire. And once again, after this fire, he sees this vision of fire consuming all of Israel. And once again, Amos pleads with God to relent. To not allow this to come against him. And so once again in verse 6. The Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be. We see the power by the way of someone interceding for others. So often we think of prayer and we sometimes think of it as very often. I, I think in my own life at least. I'm tempted to just think I'm concerned about praying for the things that I want. The things that I need. Seeing my concerns. Seeing the things that trouble me. The challenges and the pains of life. And all of those sorts of things. And thinking I need to go to the Lord in prayer. I need to seek the Lord. I need to find. I need to ask him to, to stop or to help or to prepare. or Do whatever it is that I need God to do. 
And we forget the power of interceding for others. The reason so often that we come together for prayer, and we did this all throughout the spring semester, and we'll begin once again here in just a couple weeks in our fall season, but we pray for others because we intercede for them. We are coming to the Lord and asking the Lord to come to their aid. So Amos is just a perfect example of a man interceding on behalf of an entire nation. And listen, look at how God receives this righteous and holy man intercede, pleading with God to relent. And he says, okay, I will. Did God change his mind against his judgment of Israel? Was he saying that judgment would not happen any longer? Of course not. God is unchanging. That's not the way that God operates. But in a miraculous way, God accomplishes his sovereign plans, the purposes that he has for the world. He does this in answering the prayers of his people. In this mysterious way, God has a plan and a purpose and a a course that he has set for the world. And he will accomplish exactly what he intends to accomplish. And somehow, and as we travel from A to B, we think of ourselves as kind of walking this linear line and following this certain path. But we also know that so often we diverge from that path as a people, as individuals. We get away from this, this, this purpose and this plan. And we think to ourselves, now, have, have we, now God has to get us back. And somehow in this mystery, God uses the prayers of his people to always accomplish whatever his purposes are. And he gives his people the ability to pray and to come to him and ask for his help. And he uses that. And so we don't control God with our prayers. But there is definitely a reality that God responds to our prayers. And if he responds to our prayers, why would we not pray? Why would we forsake the ability and the opportunity to come before almighty God? And to see that Almighty God accomplishes His sovereign purposes for the world through our prayers. So the third vision that Amos receives is a vision of a plumb line. And the plumb line is a tool that still somewhat is even used today. You've seen the string with a weight hung to it. That's a plumb line. Perhaps you've seen that in the hardware store, maybe even used one before. But the plumb line is a tool to measure the the wall, to ensure that the wall is straight. And so here, God is using a plumb line as an illustration of his law. Picking up in verse 8. He says, behold, I am setting, this is God speaking, Amos, or God speaking through Amos. Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid to waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. And so this vision of a plumb line, that is this measuring stick, and in a sense saying, are my people straight? And so this plumb line is hung. God uses this plumb line to say that the people have not obeyed the word of God. They have not followed his law. The people were clearly, as we might say, if we're thinking of building, they were out of plumb. They were not in line. They were not straight. And so God issues judgment against them. And in this third vision, as Amos sees this third vision, he does not intercede. We don't know why he doesn't intercede, but he doesn't intercede here. 
I think Amos, after hearing God and listening to God and God using him to prophesy and seeing all of the judgment and all of the sin, ultimately, of the people, the sinfulness of the people, he realizes that God must judge sin. If you remember all the way back to chapter 1, one of the things that I think we were failed to realize sometimes is that sin is a real issue. Sin must be dealt with. And sometimes when we look outside, perhaps recently as we look outside of our four walls of our own homes and we look at all the things going on around us, we can be tempted to believe that God has just forgotten sin and he's just seeing all of the evil running rampant and we, we are tempted to think he doesn't care. He's unaware. Is he really doing anything? Are we called? And so sometimes if we don't think God is doing what we would like him to do, we just decide, well, I'll do what I think God should do. And so we begin to judge sin. We begin to think that it's our responsibility to do those things. But one of the things that we can learn from this book, and at the end I'm going to share four lessons that I hope we've learned, is that God will judge sin. And all the way back in that first chapter, we talked about the fact that he would ultimately judge sin and justice would be served. And so here Amos declares this and we see that it will happen. And ultimately, as he describes this judgment, he says that he will destroy even the places of worship. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid to waste. Even these places of worship will be destroyed because they have been defiled. By a people who worship God with their lips and deny him with their lives. And so God promises that he will bring judgment. And Amos, in a sense, is grieving this message. This is why he's prayed. He grieves the message of judgment. Not only will God bring judgment, though, on his people here at the end of verse 9, we see that God will bring judgment upon the leaders of the people. He says, I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Jeroboam was the king of the northern kingdom. If you want to read more about this in history, you can go to your first and second kings. You can read about the kings of Israel and the division of the two kingdoms. And Jeroboam is set up as the king of the northern kingdom. And ultimately, God promises that he will bring judgment against him. The palace of the king will be destroyed. Jeroboam will die. And when Amos announces the destruction, he's, just, he's in a sense announcing the destruction, not just of the religious places, the worship places, but ultimately of the government. He's saying all these things will be torn down. The religious leaders will be torn down. The, the government as well. The king will die. Can you imagine the challenge of declaring this message to these people? All of their wealth... Filled with power. This is not a time in Israel, in the northern kingdom, when things are going bad. To the human eye, everything is going as well as it could be for them. They have money. They have power. They have influence. They're ruling their own lives. They're they're not under the oppression of other people. They've been set apart. They have this northern kingdom that was given to them so they wouldn't have to deal with traveling down to the temple any longer in the southern kingdom. Everything in their life they think is going well. And here comes Amos, a messenger of God, saying, yeah, everything looks like it's great because you've got plenty of money. But I'm not for you, God says, because all you do is you practice religion. You don't really worship me. Your leaders aren't people of my own heart. 
And so we see the confrontation of this reality as Amos is delivering this message and a challenging message, telling religious leaders over and over again of their sinfulness, that God's aware of it all. Now he's threatened the king's life. And so one of the priests, Amaziah, responds to this. He, I think in a sense, Amaziah sees this is an opportunity. Like as often stories go, if you threaten the king, then maybe we can get rid of you because then we can kill you. If you're just threatening the prophets or the priests or the church, there's not much that we can do. We can't really respond with death. All the way fast forward to Jesus, by the way, what was Jesus accused of? They hated him because of his blasphemy, but they knew that they couldn't kill him for that. He had to say, they had to declare him, he says that he's the king. He threatened Caesar. And now that he's threatened Caesar, Pilate, you better do something about it because he's going to take over. So Amaziah, seeing this little in, oh, let me respond. Verse 10, then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, the king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. He's come all the way up to your own land, and he's conspired against you. He is leading a threat against you, Jeroboam. The land is not able to bear all his words. Amaziah, realizing all that he has said, if this is true, we could not bear it up. And he says, he quotes Amos, Jeroboam shall die by the sword and Israel must go into exile away from his land. This is what Amos has declared to Israel. And now Amaziah, the priest, says this can't be. So Amaziah, though, he responds. He sends this word to Jeroboam, tells him of this problem coming for him. And then Amaziah responds to him and he responds and we get a picture of this priest's heart. Remember, Amos has been declaring the judgment against these religious activities. In a sense, false worship that was occurring in God's house. And he says to Amos in verse 12, O seer, go, flee away to the land of Judah. And eat bread there and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary and it is a temple of the kingdom. One of the things that we see in Amaziah's response, first off, is that notice that he has no mention of God. There's no, he's a priest, and yet he never references God in his response. What does he reference? Himself. His kingdom, his possessions, his, you know, his authority, his role. And as he responds to Amos, he first of all calls him a seer, which is a derogatory term for a prophet. <laughs> he says, oh, you, you're, you, you're a visionary, you're, you're a dreamer. He says, go, go back home, run back to Judah, Amos. Prophets would sometimes, these false prophets would crop up and they would do it because they could earn bread. They could earn money. They could sustain themselves through it. He says, go eat bread there. Go prophesy back home and let them feed you. But don't do that here. Don't do it in this, the king's sanctuary. Don't do it in the temple of this kingdom. Amaziah didn't want to hear what God had to say. Because again, things looked great for him. Why would he want to stop what was happening? If you remember what was Israel doing? They were bringing not just offerings, but more than they were called to bring. They were bringing into the temple abundantly. 
And God refused to, 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 to bless any of it because it was not given with the right heart. But Amaziah, the priest, you can know he was doing, again, very well, just as the people were. So Amos responds to Amaziah and he tells him, I'm not doing what I want to do. I'm doing what God has called me to do. Look at verse 14. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock and the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. So he's, as we talked about in chapter one, Amos is a herdsman. We believe more than likely he owned a herd and is over them, but he is doing life, enjoying life as a herdsman, taking care of his flock, living life, no worries in the world. And then God comes to him and says, I need you to go to Israel. I need you to prophesy against them. I need you to tell them even that the king is going to be killed. Amos says, I didn't do this. This is not anything I'd want to do. Again, so often we are called to deliver a message our responsibility sometimes to pick up the phone and call that friend and speak the truth to them to tell them perhaps a hard thing God puts it on your heart you pray through that you're convinced that yes this is something that needs to be said needs to be dealt with you see the sinfulness the hurt the pain that your friend your loved one is enduring and we've got to step in We've got to press into that. That's not a fun message to deliver. That's not something that we can enjoy, that we enjoy. Just like Amos, we're not sitting back thinking, thank you, Lord. I really wanted to have that very hard and painful conversation. I was so looking forward to the day that you would tell me that I could bring judgment against this friend that I love. No, that's not what we think, obviously. That's not our hearts. But sometimes we are called to deliver that message, to speak the truth. And sometimes that message, very often, in fact, that message, is, can, be, that message can be challenging. That's why we have to do that and make sure our words are just bathed in prayer. But the message must be delivered. So Amos is, says, I didn't want to do any of this. This is clearly and only because the Lord's calling on my life. Amos is a man who is grieving over the reality. This, this calling on his life has cost him. This wasn't something easy for him to do. God sent him. And so he's being obedient. And ultimately, in response to Amaziah, Amos tells him also, you will be dealt with. Therefore, verse 17, therefore, thus says the Lord, this is to Amaziah, the priest, your wife shall be called, will be called a prostitute in the city and your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword and your land shall be divided up with a measuring line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land and Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land. This is the promise. This is what God says to Amaziah. This exile will happen. There will be ultimate destruction that comes for Israel. And there's nothing that anyone is going to do to stand in the way of that. There's no, no, nothing that can interfere with God accomplishing his purposes. 
And so Amos chapter 8, as we turn to chapter 8, we made it all the way through chapter 7 quickly. Amos chapter 8, Amos begins to tell and confirms that this day of judgment that is being promised is near. It's coming soon. So that we've had these three visions. We first had the vision of the, um, excuse me, the, the crops being destroyed. The second vision was of the fire that was coming to destroy the land. The third vision, this destruction of the temples and, and the sanctuaries and ultimately uh, Jeroboam being killed. And the fourth vision is this judgment that is coming. It is a, and a, the, the vision is a basket of fruit. Verse eight, chapter 8, verse 1, this is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. I like that, by the way. God shows Amos something. Amos asks him what he sees. And he says, I, I see just what you're showing me, Lord. I'm not sure what that is. Sometimes I know that as, as I'm seeking the Lord and asking the Lord for, uh, for clarity around something and, and direction. And, and I, I think I see, and, and God just said, yeah, you, you, you see right. That, that's it. That's what you're, that, that's what you're supposed to do. That's what, that's what you're supposed to say. And I'm kind of, the, why am I usually asking that question? Are you sure, Lord? Is there another way that we could do this? Is there another pl- uh, purpose or a, a, a path for you to accomplish your plans? Anyway, Amos says, sees, I see a basket of fruit. And then God says, the end has come upon my people Israel, and I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord. So many dead bodies, there are thrown everywhere silence. Amos declares, and God speaks to Amos, that judgment is coming soon. The summer fruits, what is summer fruit? It's fruit that is ripe. And Israel was ripe for judgment. It was time for their judgment. And God is telling Amos that his work, Amos, your work, you're almost through. It's almost done. God had stood by and watched as his people had drifted into idolatry and injustice. And ultimately, he would stand by no longer. And his justice and what God would deliver, the judgment of God, would be complete. So complete that while there had been all of this noise... Do you remember back in chapter 5, I believe, where the people would come in and they were declaring they were giving so much, they were making noise with their offerings? Some of you may remember the, 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 the practice of the day was to bring in an offering and they had trumpets. A trumpet was not the musical instrument as we think of, but they were essentially the bowls that were where the offering was collected and they would throw it in so that the trumpet would make noise, so that everyone could hear their generosity. And so where that has been what is happening in the house of God, all of this overflow of wealth and prosperity and bringing praise upon yourself, self-idolatry, while injustice, while you're oppressing the poor and not caring for others and not looking to others, God says, I will end all of that and what will result when I am done with my judgment is silence. There will be nothing left. Israel has failed to live according to God's law on all accounts. Again, he says, there's plenty of religion here, but there's no heart for God. So verses 4 and 6, they remind Israel of their sin. Hear this, this is why they had, what they had done. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end. Saying, when will the new moon be over and when will we sell, may we sell grain? 
and, and the Sabbath, that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great, and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. All they were doing was building themselves up their own prosperity, their own wealth, their own strength, their own power. That's all that they were after. And so God would bring judgment because of these things. And that's a summary, in a sense, of all that Amos has described in the first four and a half, five chapters. Making our way through chapter 8, 7 through 14, describe all of the destruction that God will bring. And ultimately, again, it's summed up in verse 3, where all of the destruction, God's judgment, will be complete, and the only thing that will be left is silence. Now, we have heard over and over again throughout this entire book. Perhaps by now you're thinking to yourself, if you've stuck with us for all four, five, six weeks of this teaching, this is a lot of, this is pretty negative, Pastor. This is kind of a beatdown. I'm not sure if I like hearing this message. Well, perhaps it's a message that we need to hear a message against idolatry, a message against. Looking the other way when injustice is running rampant. But it's also a message that ends in chapter 9. God gives Amos a vision. And it's a vision of his mercy. The final vision of Amos, that fifth vision that we described, is the Lord standing at an altar. Again announcing the judgment that will come. Declaring that he will destroy. But ultimately, in the end, that he will also restore. I saw the Lord, verse nine, chapter 9, verse 1, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake, and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. God will destroy, and he continues this message of destruction all the way through verse 7. But then, in verse 8, he turns... And he says that he will leave a remnant. Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom. And I will destroy it from the surface of the ground. Except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. We see in this verse a picture of God's love and his mercy. See, God had not forgotten his covenant with Abraham. God had promised, if you know your history a little bit, your Bible a little bit, God had promised Abraham that he would make him the father of many nations. And he took Abraham out and he said, look up in the sky. What do you see? I see stars. God, how many? I don't know. Well, that's how many your your children will be is what God promised him. And that promise was not contingent upon Abraham's righteousness or Abraham doing the right thing. That promise of God was contingent upon God making promises and being a faithful fulfiller of his promises. An unchanging God. A God who always delivers. And so although Israel, God had, uh, in a sense, given Abraham the answer to this covenant or, or done what he had promised him, he had made him the father of many people. The Israelites were now numbered in the millions of people at this t- point in history. As many as the stars could be seen. But they had drifted away. They had forgotten God. They had begun to worship themselves. And so, yes, judgment would have to come for those sins, but ultimately God wouldn't, even in the midst of that sinfulness, forget his promise to Abraham. He says that he would raise up 
a new kingdom. Verse 11 of chapter 9, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen, and repair its breaches, and raise up its ruin, and rebuild it as in the days of old. See, at this moment in history where Amos is speaking, there's not a Davidic king. There's not a king that is after David, a man after God's own heart. The kings of Israel had drifted away. They had fallen away from worshiping the Lord and following his commands. They had led the people to fall away. They had even allowed, because of their influence, the priests, and like Amaziah, had fallen away and had completely forgotten to worship God. And so God promises that he will, though, one day raise up a new king. That he will restore Israel. His promise to Abraham would be fulfilled. And there will be a healed nation of Israel. Now as we think through this, we just think of the history. And we remember God's promise. We can look to Acts chapter 15. That's why Pastor Kyle read that this morning. You might have been thinking, I don't know what this has to do with Amos. And where is their connection point here? See, Israel was destroyed. We've talked about the Assyrians came in and destroyed Israel just as God had promised. All that he said he would do in Amos, the Assyrians accomplished. And they left a little remnant of people. And that remnant of people, you may remember, became the Samaritans. The remnant of people intermarried with the Gentiles that were sent in to occupy the the territory of Samaria. They became Samaritans. They shifted away from following God. The Jews that had uh, had so had been led and taught God's word had were so influenced by the Assyrians and by the Gentiles that came in. They became they forgot all that they were. Became the Samaritans. After the Assyrians came in, the Persians come in. After the Persians come, the Romans, the Greeks. Eventually, this territory is completely God is not there. Completely absent. He's not doing it. This this land as he promised is ultimately destroyed. And he will not pass by it again. Until Jesus comes. And in Acts chapter 15. We read of God's promises. To fulfill what he promised to Abraham. If you want to turn over to Acts chapter 15. In verse 16. Pastor Kyle read, and this is the words of the prophets, agree, just as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David as it is fallen. That's what Amos has just said, or God has said to Amos. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who make these things known from old. So what's happening in Acts chapter 15, this is known as the Jerusalem Council, where in a sense, there's this debate over allowing Gentiles to come into the church, to be welcomed into the body. And so the Jews, the Israelites of that day, now fast forwarding into our New Testament, are are debating, hey, we're going out and we're declaring the gospel of Jesus. We're telling people about his death, burial, and resurrection and his promise of a new kingdom. And these Gentiles are coming to faith. They're believing in Jesus. But don't we need to make them Jewish first? Do we need to kind of have them go through and get circumcised and do all of this? And as you might know, many of our New Testament letters are dealing with this challenge within the church, this debate and this trial over what should happen with the Gentiles. And so they, they form a council. They all go to Jerusalem. The apostles go to Jerusalem and they decide what should be done. And at the end of the assembly, after Paul and Barnabas 
have told all that God had done through them amongst the Gentiles, James steps up and replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has told us how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. And he quotes Amos here, Amos chapter 9, that the promises of God's restoration were sure and were true. He's saying God promised us that he would fulfill his promise to Abraham. And God has promised us that he would welcome in the Gentile. God is a God who fulfills his promises even in the midst of grievous sin. So we go back all the way back to Amos and the people of that day that are led off into destruction. It might seem at that point in time... We could say God is done with his people. God is done with the people of Israel. But that's not what Amos chapter 9 tells us. Amos 9 reminds us that God fulfills his promises to us. And we, every single one of us, whether you're gathered with me in person or you're watching online, if you're a follower of of Christ, you're you're a recipient of God's promise. To welcome you in. God's mercy on Israel was a fulfillment of his promise to them. And it's his assurance or our assurance of his mercy that we will also receive. Even in the midst of deep and dark and real sin. God will judge. But when sin is lamented and grieved and repented of. His mercy rushes in. So as we close this book of Amos, I pray that there would be four lessons that we would learn from this book. As we summarize all that God has said through Amos to the people of Israel and ultimately taught us. The first is that God will not allow his name to be defamed. See, the people of God had defamed his name by losing sight of all that he had called them to be and began to worship himself. And yet they were called the people of God. And so all of the nations of the world looked and said, yeah, those are the people. We remember when David conquered the Philistines and God, that was God's hand on them. We remember when he did this through them, when they came in, when they took this territory and took that territory. They were his people called by his name. And now they were doing all of the things that were completely counter to the nature of God and the character of God. And he would not allow that. And so sin must be judged and must be dealt with. And so we as Christians, who so often are tempted to profess Christ and to claim the name of Christ, calling ourselves Christians or Christ followers, we can acknowledge him with our mouths, but do we worship him as Lord? We should be warned that God will not allow his name to be defamed. Don't call yourself a Christian and live completely opposite of the calling of God in your life when you step out from this place. That's That's not who we're called to be. And that is a word of conviction and a word of judgment that God warns us. Be careful, friend. You call yourself by my name. And if you are truly mine, then your heart is mine. And you will follow my ways. You'll do what I've called you to do. You will be a people set apart and holy. So be watchful. Is your life, does it have the marks of Christ? Is there a holiness to your, your life, the way you live? This isn't patting ourselves on the back. This is acknowledging that we call ourselves by the name of God. 
That is something to be careful with. Second, worship is not an act of the will, but it's a condition of the heart. See, the people of God were doing all of the things that looked like worship. Singing loudly, giving gifts, doing all that they could do. Showing up in mass numbers, by the way, when the temple was open. And yet, their hearts were not worshipful in any way. They were doing all of the religious activity, but were completely apart from God. Our worship is a condition of our heart. Worship is a response to what we just talked about. The receiving of God's mercy. Acknowledging that apart from God, this is my confession here. I'm not speaking to you just as our church or corporately. My confession. I am a sinner. I fail to live up to the plumb line of God's standards. I do that regularly. But I grieve that sin. I lament that reality in my life. And I fall on my knees and ask for God's mercy. And I worship him because he delivers it over and over and over and over again. And his love is unconditional. And he fulfills the promise that he has made to me. That he will give me life and that life will be everlasting. That's why I worship. The worship begins inside And so when we come together corporately, yes, we sing out and we do these things to encourage one another and to spur one another on and all of those things. But it begins in the heart. And if our worship is simply an act of the will, just doing this because I think it's the right thing to do, it's expected of me, that's not true worship. Examine your heart and ask, do you truly know what it means to receive the mercy of Christ? Because I do not know if you really know in the depth of your heart what it means to receive God's mercy. How you cannot cry out to him. Praise you, Father. I am not worthy and yet you have delivered your love to me in abundance. Third, we cannot claim to worship God and be worshipers of God and be called by his name and turn a blind eye to the injustices of the world. There is great injustice in our world, and that is something that is a reality. It's not, as the Solomon would say, there's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new to the injustices that we see going out in our world today, but they are there, and there are injustices to deal with. There was a previous generation that was called to deal with injustices, and sometimes they didn't, and so that's why we're dealing with them still today. But it's our responsibility as the people of God to see these injustices and to be people who work and strive to deal with them, to deliver mercy and deliver God's truth and to deliver God's love to our world. Here's the reality. I understand that the cure for the injustices of the world is a change to sinful hearts. The proclamation of the gospel, as the gospel goes out into the world, people are changed and people's hearts change lead to other things. But if sinful people have created sinful systems, then we need to work to end both. The gospel is a cure to both of those things. Changed hearts change the world. And so our message is a message of the gospel that Jesus saves Jesus is alive and he has called us to live a life that is apart from sin, a holy life. That the world would look and say there's something different. But as we go about our day and we see the weak being oppressed, the poor not being cared for, the needy needing help. Matthew 25 is very clear. Jesus will come and will look at all of those works of justice and mercy and love. 
And he will praise those things. And as we turn a blind eye to those things, he will say, I never knew you. That's a stern warning that we must be people who cannot turn a blind eye. Who else but the people of God can uh, offer a cure and a help to this broken world? If not us, I would ask, who should? And we should not look to the outside of the world to fix its own problems when we have the message of hope and the message that cures all ills. Finally, the last lesson I hope that we have learned from Amos is that God hates sin, and yet God is merciful with sinners. He hates this false worship that the Israelites have stepped into. It's defiling to him. It, in fact, it brings even more judgment upon them as they continue to live in that. He despises it. It grieves him. And he will not allow it to stand. And yet, Amos chapter 9 reminds us that he is merciful. And that there is hope for sinners. As we looked forward and saw the church going out and us being welcomed in, even as Gentiles to the family of God... Fulfilling his purposes, we can be assured that God is merciful with sinners. So I want to just close by saying if perhaps those first two points of application and learning, that God will not allow his name to be defamed, and that worship is a condition of the heart and not an act of the will, if that was convicting for you, then I would just invite you to confess that to God. Acknowledge our sins and receive his mercy. And perhaps you're watching and you're someone who doesn't know much. You say, I'm not real sure about this Jesus or this Christ, this mercy that you talk about. Then I would plead with you. That number that Pastor Kyle referenced, it sounds like a text message to get a cold call for something. Send that text. Let us reach out to you and let us tell you of the hope of Jesus. Because I can assure you there is nothing in my life that is worthy of God's praise. I, like Paul, would say I'm the chief among sinners. And yet God has dealt with me mercifully. He has showered me with his love. And if you don't know that love, there's nothing more important than for you to know that today. So I plead with you, send that text message. Comment on social media, however it is. Reach out to us. Ryan at City Church Melissa is my personal email. Email me right now. I won't show up at your door, but I will, I will reach out to you and we'll have a conversation. It might include a cup of coffee, by the way. We'll have a conversation. It's the most important conversation that we could ever have. So church, let's be the church that God has called us to be. Let's not be false worshipers. Let's not be idolaters. Let's be the people set apart and holy for the good of our city and for the glory of the name of God. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I thank you for your conviction, the way you move in our hearts. I thank you for the gift of your word, Father, that is so clear. I know sometimes we read it and it doesn't seem to make sense to us and yet it is true and thank you that you've given us minds that we can process and 
with just a little bit of diligence, we can understand this word and what you have to say to us. And so I pray right now what I just asked, the response I asked for, Father, I pray, send your spirit and to deliver that. Lead us, those of us who call ourselves by your name, to confess and lament how we've been tempted to drift away from who you've called us to be. Create in us a new heart. Cleanse us of our unrighteousness. And let us just be aware of the calling on our lives in response to your mercy. And I pray that anyone who does not know the hope of Jesus doesn't know what it means to receive your mercy. Holy Spirit, just break down the walls that exist around hearts. Turn hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. Would you prompt my friends, friends that you love dearly, that according to your sovereign plan are hearing this word right now, not on accident, because, but because you've ordained it. Pray that you would just prompt them and provide them with a friend that can tell them of the mercy, the love of God. Give them the, the boldness and the bravery to send an email, to send a text, to reach out, to have a conversation. Lord, we desire, we want to be your people. We want to be a people that you've called us to be. That's why we're here. We know that you are good, but we know that you deserve and, re- and, and should receive all the glory. So that's what we want for our lives, Lord. So would you help us in that? We pray these things in Jesus' mighty and precious name. Amen. Well, thank you again for being with us this morning. As we close, I just have a brief announcement about next weekend. Some, if you've been with us for the last few weeks, you've heard of this. But we are having uh, our leadership summit, which is an opportunity um, to just engage with our church. And so uh, we have various ministries within our church. And as we begin to ramp our way back up into some sort of normalcy uh, and whatever this new normal might look like for us, we want to invite you, if you feel comfortable, by the way, come back to worship. We are doing all that we can to make this a safe place to gather. And we have space for you so that you can uh, do that safely. Um, but join us next weekend and then stick around for the day and find an opportunity, a place where you can serve within our body. Um, if you're brand new with us, don't feel like that's an obligation. But if you just want to learn and just sort of hear, what does it look like uh, for City Church in terms of kids ministry or student ministry? or How do you care for your body? How do you reach out to other people? And uh, what makes all of this happen on uh, Sundays and other gatherings? How do you make that happen? All of those things, our leaders will be sharing uh, those things with you. We'll have various meetings. We'll provide snacks. We'll provide meals. But it's a day for us just to begin our new calendar year um, and, and kind of get moving. And so uh, August 16th, that's next Sunday. All right, mark your, your on your calendars and just uh, be with us. Join us for that day. Um, and uh, again, you can peer in 
or it might be the day where you've been kind of sitting a little bit on the sidelines for the last year or so. And you can say, hey, I'm jumping in. I want to serve uh, with student ministry. I want to serve with kids ministry. I want, to, I want to be somebody that reaches out and prays with people when there's a need in our church. All of those things um, can happen uh, through that. And so I encourage you uh, to join us and be with us next Sunday. Thank you so much. Pray you have a great day. Um, thank you for being with us. We love you and uh, look forward to seeing you again very soon. God bless. Thanks for joining us for the preaching of God's Word at City Church Melissa. We meet Sundays at 1030 a.m. at 2950 Cardinal Drive, and we'd love to meet you this coming week. City Church Melissa, for the glory of God and the good of the city.